Hey guys, as you know, our world is going through an unprecedented time during the COVID-19 pandemic. To strike out this virus, we, as coaches, have partnered with Fred Hutch Research Institute, who is working on the front lines to stop the spread of COVID-19. Please consider donating to hashtag coaches versus COVID. And here's a word from Hutch. Your support for Fred Hutch is a strike against COVID-19 and a step toward a healthier world. Right now, Hutch scientists with expertise in infectious disease, immunology, public health, and data science are working urgently to speed up testing, track the spread of the virus in real time, and safely test new treatments and vaccines. Your contribution to Coaches vs. COVID will help expand this urgent work. Donate now at fredhutch.org slash coaches versus COVID. Hello and welcome back to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner and thank you so much for joining us. Today we've got on Josh Herzenberg, pitching coordinator and quality control coach for the Lodi Giants. Josh was a scout and coach for the Dodgers organization before heading overseas to coach in the KBO. And on the show, we talk about his scouting background, which has helped him to become a better coach. We discuss some of the first steps when he took his coordinator role. We talk about some differences between Major League Baseball organizations and the KBO, and much, much more. You're gonna love this conversation. And here is Josh Herzenberg. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate the invite. Of course, of course. A mutual friend of ours and Drew Saylor, uh, who I, I think we both know and love really well, recommended you for the show. And to be honest with you, I've, I've been really excited to get to know you a little bit better over the last couple of weeks. And and it's, it's been nothing but, but a pleasure. But I wanted to just uh, introduce you a little bit and um, just welcome to the show. Yeah, sure. I appreciate that. Drew's a, Drew's a great guy. Sings your praises. Uh, obviously very excited for your new opportunity with the Rangers. And, uh, you know, it was my pleasure to come on and, and get to know you and, and come on board on the show. For sure, for sure. But for our listeners who want to get to know you a little bit better in a, you know, short snapshot form, can you tell us a little bit about how you decided to get into coaching? Sure. Uh, I played D3 baseball, grew up in New York, a uh, left-handed pitcher, uh, growing up and then uh, kind of transitioned my way into the scouting side of things. Was really fortunate to, uh, you know, meet some some kind people, did an internship with the Nationals after I got out of grad school, uh, ended up doing a year of a scout development program with the Diamondbacks based in Tampa, and then did several years uh, as an area scout covering North Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas, living in, in Dallas uh, with the Dodgers. Uh, during that time, also uh, sort of a double duty kind of role where I, I, uh, I coached part of two seasons as well uh, in Ogden, Utah for the Ogden Raptors, the Pioneer League, and in uh, Rancho Cucamonga, California uh, with the Quakes in the Cal League. And so for me, uh, you know, I really enjoyed the, the player development process, uh, really enjoyed the camaraderie in the, in, the, uh, in the clubhouse, you know, the communication with the players, sort of helping them. Uh, you know, progress and, and, and support them in their careers. And, and I figured, you know, what a better opportunity than, uh, than to continue hopefully making that a career. No, I love that. And, you know, a couple of things that, that I really, I want to dig into is, is number one, you're coming from the future. So, uh, you know, I would like <laughs> to know the lottery numbers at the moment. You're, you're currently in, 
in uh, South Korea, and you guys <laughs> are uh, you guys are are really you're playing right now, which is a, a really neat thing, and and it kind of it gives us over in the states uh, kind of a light at the end of the tunnel, which is really cool. But uh, let's dig into the scouting a little bit because I, I think for most of the listeners, they aren't scouts. But I also think that it is something that could help us become better coaches. So how do you think that becoming a better scout and being, you know, entrenched in that aspect of player development, how has that helped you become a better coach? So I think more than anything, scouting really helped me with time management and, uh, you know, project management skills. Um, the evaluation part of, of scouting is always fun, you know, getting there and actually putting grades on, on players. But I think the thing that gets lost uh, to a lot of people, and I certainly was unaware of this prior to getting in, was the volume of responsibility that you have as an area scout. Um, you know, I mentioned my area was North Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas for the Dodgers. Um, That's a big I was area. Much res- huge area. Um, and I think I was pretty much responsible for any amateur baseball happenings uh, in that area. I was responsible for knowing where the players were, who the players were, knowing their schedules, knowing their medical backgrounds, knowing their, their makeup. Um, you know, and that required a lot of interactions with a lot of college coaches, high school coaches, travel ball coaches, uh, you know, private coaches, agents in the area, um, you know, and, and the resources available to you are, are vast, um, you know, working for a major league organization. But at the same time, it is a, a very individual responsibility and you have to be a self-starter and really uh, organized. So for me, more than anything, um, more than more than the evaluations, more than signing players, more than, um, you know, the 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 draft room conversations more than actually, uh, you know, writing scouting reports. I think the time management and the project management skills that I learned doing that role has really helped me uh, just have a narrow focus and have a better understanding of how to prioritize responsibilities, you know, in all aspects of life. No, I love that. And that's something that, you know, I've never, never gotten to experience. So I, I think it's really interesting to, to get to hear that side of it because I think of scouting, I think of like uh, Clint Eastwood and trouble with the curve, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's so interesting to hear the the details of, of your daily routines. And, and so something that something else that I think is really neat and, and let's, let's actually, let me go back a little bit. Let's talk about how you decided to go to Korea and then let's, let's talk a little bit about that transition, what that's been like daily routines and stuff like that. But how did you ultimately decide to go over there? Yeah, I mean, basically, to, to make a long story really short, uh, got in contact, got a, a mutual friend of mine, uh, had a connection with someone that had just taken a job out here with the Lotte Giants. Uh, I spoke with uh, that person, the GM on the phone several times and was really excited about the, the process that uh, the organization was trying to implement out here uh, and was excited about you know my potential to contribute to it. Um, in kind of the dual role that I have right now as pitching coordinator and as quality control coach. So for me, it was it was a combination of a variety of things from a professional perspective. And then from a personal perspective, just it was very exciting to think about like moving across the world. I mean, I, like I said, I was born and raised in New York and scouting has taken me a lot of places in the States uh, and in the Caribbean, but never really outside of that. Um, you know, and this is my first time in Asia. Uh, we had spring training in Australia. That was my first time in Australia. So just from a personal perspective, experiencing a different culture is, is really, really cool, really, really exciting. So combining those two things, I mean, for me, once once the offer came across and we had, you know, kind of our conversations about what it would look like was, was really a no brainer. Well, that's fantastic, and and so, what does your daily routine look like currently? Because I, I, yeah, I mean, you're experiencing or did experience the same type of things that we're going through, and and for those listening at a later date, uh, today is actually April 9th, uh, 
and uh, we are currently going through the COVID-19 crisis and, and you guys are are practicing and playing games or maybe inner squads and different things like that. So tell us a little bit about your daily routine and, and really kind of what you guys have been going through, because again, for you guys, it, it, we see it, we see inner squads and, and everything is in a different language and I'm not even, but it's on the TV, right? Because I'm like, man, it's live baseball, which is fantastic. Uh, but just yeah. kind of tell us what your daily routine looks like and, and how you guys are handling that situation. Sure. So, I mean, specific to the virus, obviously, we're, we're dealing with it as well. Everybody in the world is. Um, as of right now, it is just inner squads uh, without fans in the stands. Uh, the league has informed us, us tentatively um, that starting on April 21st, we're going to be able to scrimmage other KBO teams. And we're hoping to be able to start the season officially in the first week of May. Uh, that could literally change in a few hours. It's kind of a fluid process, depending on, obviously, like the amount of confirmed cases and sort of the geography of everything that goes on. Um we're kind of just monitoring the situation and trying to treat everything else as normal as possible day to day. Uh, we show up at the park, we get our work in, um, you know, and, and sort of just go from there. Um, specific to, to baseball skills, uh, I've actually seen it as, as almost a bright spot. You know, we're trying to be as optimistic as possible. Um, we're treating this entire situation as almost like an extended spring training. We are fortunate enough to be able to be with the players every day, both at the major league and the minor league level. Um, so as pitching coordinator, we've, you know, we, we've worked really hard myself and, and the rest of our pitching coaches on implementing really individualized, like weighted ball programs, for example, um, that are velocity training or, or, or training specific mechanical movements that we might not have been able to do otherwise had we been playing games. Um, so while, of course, we would rather be competing, um, this additional individual practice time with the players has almost sort of been a blessing in disguise in a sense because we really are able to individualize things at a much more granular level uh, than we would have been able to otherwise. So um, the, the virus has definitely thrown a wrench in, in, our, in our plans, um, and we're definitely not taking it lightly, of course. Uh, but, you know, once we strip that away and we recognize that we're really fortunate that everyone around us, knock on wood, is still healthy, uh, we try our best mm-hmm. to just, you know, go go about our day-to-day as normal and, and continue to just try to help the players get better. I really like that. And, and again, it's playing in empty stadiums. It, it's something that has been thrown around, uh, particularly uh, this last week when they talk about Major League Baseball maybe starting in May uh, on spring training sites and and how does that really change the dynamic of things? I mean, it, it's, it's something that, that I, I look at and I'm like, man, it's fan experience is so much fun, but so is baseball. Yeah. And so I really trying to figure that, you know, find that fine line between the two. And it's, we obviously want to keep our players safe more than anything. And I think our ownership and, and your ownership does uh, as well. But, but what has that been like? And, and just kind of take us through that experience, if you don't mind, just dig in a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's been weird. I mean, there, there's really no other really way to say it. I mean, we, you know, we have a stadium with tens of tens of thousands of people, and you know, we have a lot of guys that are on our on our we call it first team, the major league team here in the KBO. Um, you know, with with 15 plus years of experience at the level, and so it's odd to be able to like hear the crack of the bat echo uh, through the crowd or hear uh, you know the chatter in the infield. Um, without any, any activity behind it. So um, it's an adjustment that we have to make. Uh, it's, it's not ideal. It's not something that we love happening. But at the same time, um, it is entirely out of our control. And everybody's well aware that it is, you know, obviously in the public's best interest to continue this uh, moving forward. So um, our, our responsibility as a coaching staff uh, is really just to try to keep the players motivated and keep them competing. You know, I mean, we try to remind them, 
you know, hey, as a kid, you probably didn't play in front of a big crowd. I, I know I didn't, you know, growing up right. in, in, no school, in high school and everything. And so we play the game because we love to compete. We play the game, um, you know, to, to, to win and to get better every day, regardless if there's 30,000 screaming fans or if there's, you know, an analyst and your girlfriend in the stands. I don't think that really changes anything. So um, it's definitely different. It's definitely weird. It's definitely an adjustment that our guys have had to make, but they've taken it in stride. And, and you know, I think everybody collectively has done a pretty good job staying competitive and staying motivated. You know, I really like that point. I'm assuming you said you played D3. I'm, I'm assuming that uh, they had about the same crowds as, as I did as a, as a Juco bandit to where it's like uh, parents, grandparents. Uh, sometimes you have a girlfriend show up if, if you're lucky enough to to find a girl on campus. But <laughs> Yeah, and you're lucky uh, enough to convince her to come, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And yeah. then they never come again because they're like, seriously, this yeah, like, is I don't it. Watch but, this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And then you've got uh, the red shirt guys doing stuff in the in the, in the the press box with funny noises yeah, and stuff. So exactly. you're like, welcome yeah. to Juco and D3 Baseball. But You and I had the exact same experience, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a shared experience for most of the, of the listeners who, uh, who played at one or the other, but. But let's talk about the first steps that you took, because I think that, that with any new job that we take, there's always like that transition period of like the I, I owe expletive. Right. And you're like, oh, mm-hmm. crap, what did I get myself into? What's the first thing that I'm going to do? Because you're lo- looking at this task as a whole, as like a mi- macro perspective. And then you start to settle down. You start to think about, OK, these are the first couple of steps that I think that will make the most impact. So you're coming from the Dodgers organization that had has done a fantastic job of player development. You get on a plane, you fly overseas, you're, you're in Australia and, and you're just, you know, before this, I'm sure you've got all of this planned out, but what were some different steps that you took first uh, as kind of just to lay the groundwork for the plan that you're starting to put in place now? Yeah. Great question. So, um, I was actually really fortunate. I was able to spend about two and a half weeks out here in the fall in November, uh, towards the end of our fall camp or instructional league. Um, really just getting to know everyone, um, whether it was from like our minor league players to our major league coaches, to our research and development department. Um, I think the overwhelming nature of that was more in the language barrier, um, than anything else, which is obviously something that we just kind of naturally overcome over time. Um, but because I was able to come out here in a controlled environment where we were still several months away from competing, um, and kind of get a lay of the land, understand the groundwork of, um, what's been laid already. And then, you know, where I might fit in into that process personally, how I can support, how I can help everyone around me. Um, I felt really fortunate to be able to do that. I, I would probably be like pretty overwhelmed and pretty anxious had I not come out here in the fall. Um, and then just jumped on the plane from New York and headed straight to Australia for spring training without any guidance there. Sure. So, yeah. um, you know, we, we spent the winter time myself with coaching staff, the R and D department, some of the, some of the players, um, you know, we were constantly collaborating throughout the entire winter time and, and sort of building processes that we were going to want to implement together. So once we got off the plane in Australia uh, and got over the jet lag, uh, we could kind of just get to work. So, I mean, the transition, like I said, fortunately, um, because I was able to have that experience in the fall, probably was not as overwhelming or as uh, filled with anxiety as it would have been otherwise. No, I really like that. And and to be honest, uh, for our listeners, with a coordinator, and this is something that, that there may be more people that know about this than I did, but uh, before really digging into pro ball specifics, coordinators really coach the coaches as well as sometimes they'll they'll be on the field coaches as well. But it's coordinators are like teaching the coaches what 
uh, plan that they want implemented. And then the coaches are more interacting with the guys on an everyday basis. At least it is like that here in most coordinator roles in the States, uh, in, uh, in professional baseball here. Is it a similar role there? Kind of. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, we're trying to implement everything on sort of a continuous, like circular communication loop um, to where I might have a view of everything at like a 30,000 foot view um, and understand, you know, hopefully understand at least how certain processes kind of intertwine with one another. Um, and yes, certainly, uh, you know, the pitching coaches that we that we have uh, are working in a much more hands-on capacity in the trenches, if you will, with the pitchers. Um, but I certainly, uh, you know, I, I try to avoid um, sort of the vertical um, communication as much as possible. We try to be a flat hierarchy. We try to have a, a collaborative process to where, you know, if a, if a pitching coach has an idea that might be better than mine or might be better than his peers, then we're going to challenge each other and come up with that idea and implement it successfully. So um, that circular communication loop that I that I outline is really, really something that we're really trying to push forward really hard. Um, I, I do, with that being said, I do have more of a 30,000 foot view, a big picture of mm-hmm. what we're trying to execute long term. Um, and so it's, it's this collaborative effort where I think everyone has their responsibilities and we try to create this sort of think tank environment. Perfect. I really like that. And I, I like, uh, the circular communication piece. I, I think that's a, that's a really neat way to put it. And so you said that, I guess you guys are, you said you're inner squatting, uh, is this spring training for you guys? And, and then I, I really want to, cause this was my first spring training, uh, in professional baseball. So I, was like uh, overwhelmed for uh, it seemed like the, the entire first week uh but i want to hear a, a contrast between uh spring training here in the states and then spring training there but what is spring training looking like for you guys now um has there been any changes with the virus you said empty stadiums and inner squads was was a, a another one um yeah. but also contrast it with the the spring trainings that you experienced here in the states yeah, I mean, there are little differences. I mean, our spring training started on February 1st. The Major League Camp broke in, Australia, in Adelaide, Australia, um, and then the Minor League Camp broke a few weeks later uh, back here in Busan in South Korea. Um, so I spent a few weeks, myself and a few other staff members spent a few weeks in Australia and then broke off from the Major League group early to help start uh, ramp up the Minor League Camp. Th- there aren't a ton of differences in terms of the day-to-day. Um, you know, we're still getting, getting to the park. We're getting our swings in. We're getting our throws in. We're, we're building up our our pitcher stamina, we're doing some skill specific work with catchers and, and throwing mechanics. And we're doing, you know, very, very uh, specific work off a tee or we're doing, you know, we're, we're facing a, a curveball machine in the cage and, and things that are really similar to uh, how things work in the States. Um, the process on the minor league end has been probably a little bit more similar in my mind to how I remember spring training happening in the States. Um, and I think that might just be because there's more numbers, uh, you know, in camp to where a major league camp is, is sort of just the group of players that were invited to the big leagues, big league camp. Um, but in terms of, in terms of the day to day, I mean, we show up at the park, we get our work in, you know, the guys get lifts in in the morning, they do some, uh, individual, you know, extra work afterwards. And then, you know, we go and enjoy ourselves in the evening, Adelaide, we were staying right on the beach, um, you know, in, in Adelaide, Australia, which was a beautiful time. Um, you know, and that was pretty much the, the standard up until probably, late February, maybe early March, when everything started really cranking up uh, in terms of severity with the virus here in Korea. Um, the day-to-day at the park, our, our minor league facility is sort of in a rural area outside of the city. So 
Um, in a sense, we're almost fortunate to have that because there's less concern of the virus being uh, communicated, uh, you know, amongst a, a large population outside of our complex. Um, mm-hmm. So we've really tried to maintain the day to day as normal once we're at the field um, and just kind of be cautious and aware of everything uh, off of it. We're, we're constantly having our temperature taken when we walk into buildings, we're wearing masks everywhere we go, um, you know, have monitoring our, our health and understanding um, you know, <laughs> um, if somebody is, is constantly coughing or if somebody has a headache mm-hmm. or, or these things, just kind of being, you know, hyper aware of our surroundings more than anything. Yeah, I think it's something that, again, we're going to look back at this time and, and, and man, it's just it's something that that I mentioned yesterday to my wife. I said, this is this is 9-11 for the generation that uh, that we're that we're going through and, and for for us for our generation that was that was 9/11 that that life-changing event that you'll look back on and you'll remember exactly what you were going through you can remember and feel that emotion and uh, it's it's definitely allergy season in Tulsa and so it, it's it's I've had those <laughs> thoughts too I mean it's like man it's, it's I have a headache and I'm I'm stopped up I'm like dang it's and you start to play mind games it's crazy but uh, I think uh I think for for the listeners that are doing this, they're doing the right thing, staying home, staying safe, and and we'll get back to playing baseball and and again, at some point. Uh, but but also, I w- did you guys have any like time off to where you had to take a break from throwing? Um. Well, originally not built in, and then as we've extended out our our spring training, uh, you know that we didn't plan to extend out. Um, we've sort of stringed out our throws to where we're not constantly ramping up uh, off a mound with such high volume as we would have uh, otherwise. The season was supposed to start, the major league season was supposed to start on uh, March 28th, and the minor league season was supposed okay. to start on March 24th. Um, so once it was it was identified fairly early that that was not going to happen, um, we've, we've mm-hmm. sort of just like, um, I, I, the word I would use is just strung out um, the, the, the preparation work. So, you know, instead of having a guy throw, you know, 75 pitches every, every fifth day or something like that, we're stringing it out to where he might throw several sets of 30 pitches or he might do a live VP. He might finish up in the bullpen, or we're going to do some extra resistance training on a, you know, on a shadow mound, or we're going to do some additional weighted ball work with some of the driveline equipment we have, some things like that to try to, to try to mix it up and, and to try to not overwhelm the system, but also continue to have them improve at the same time. Sure, and, and I'm not a pitching coach, uh, but I think that, especially here now that man, it's it's been almost a month since we have been all together in spring training. I, I think that that's something that that a lot of people are looking to uh, to to go. Okay, what is exactly? I wish we had a map. You know, like like you guys yeah. were lucky enough to say, hey, we're we're just going to push it back a couple of weeks and then get started. And and we, it seems like every day you hear May or June or July <laughs> or. You know, and it's like, man, I, I'm sure it's driving pitches, pitching coaches crazy. But, uh, but as far as constant communication, I, I think that it seems like the guys that that I have gotten to be around have have been in constant communication, and yeah. they're throwing when they can. But again, uh, player safety is, is at the forefront of that. So I, I was curious on that. But another thing that is new for you is is really getting to know players personally, and I, I think that for the most part, we're a product of our environment when we're growing up and whether that's culturally, whether that's in our own household, uh, whether that's ethnically, uh, I think we, we are a product of the different things that we have experienced uh, in our past. And you can kind of see that, uh, but you can't really experience culture unless you're living in it. 
And yeah. so, uh, what is your process in getting to know your players personally there? And if you want to, just take us talk us through a little bit about the culture there, and then maybe how that drives your personal interaction with those guys. And and it obviously hit on the language barrier because that's that's something that's real and something that's really it's tough. Definitely, definitely. I think you know the, the the best way I can sort of think about my process in terms of you know human interaction and, and personal relationships is. I'm thinking my mom's an educator. My mom's worked in, in the schools for over 20 years. She's been in the White Plains City School District in New York, which is where I grew up. Um, and, and now that I'm, I'm older, I'm an adult, she kind of, you know, she shares, she shares more stories with me nowadays than probably she did when I was a kid. Um, but her stories are very rarely about a, a lesson plan or, or about something specific, about a test grade or anything that the kids accomplished. It's all about the interactions that they have, you know, the, the successes or the failures or the frustrations or the personal, um, you know, issues that these kids are dealing with, um, you know, at home possibly. And so over time, you know, hearing my mom constantly share these stories with myself and my sister, um, understanding what was really relevant and important to those people that she was surrounded by and, and that impacted her, I think was really, really important uh, in terms of a learning experience for me. Because, you know, you can strip away the lesson plans and you can strip away the test grades and you can strip away everything that students are accomplishing at their desk. And what's more important is the human element to what they're doing. And that was really impacting my mom as, as an educator. So I've kind of taken that um, lesson that I learned from her naturally, just, you know, growing up in the same house as her. And I've tried to implement it as best as possible as a teacher here, because at the end of the day, you know, as a coach, we're, we're really just teachers. Um, and that doesn't really have a language barrier or a cultural barrier. You want to develop relationships. You want to understand the person. You want to understand what makes that person tick, um, what excites that person and, and what makes that person anxious. And so you can speak on their level. You know, every, every single person is different, regardless if you're dealing with someone from Seoul, South Korea or, you know, the south side of Chicago or upstate New York or Miami or whatever it might be. Um, and so translating that experience from my childhood and, and my early adulthood growing up um, with my mom and, you know, coming here and, and experiencing this hasn't really been too difficult. Um, culturally, there are obviously differences between Korea and the States um, outside of the language barrier. Here, there is a hierarchy of um, respecting uh, your elders and respecting authority. I think that's much more emphasized than in the States, uh, which certainly I don't think is a bad thing, but it's just something that as someone that grew up in New York, I think it's just something that I need to be more keenly aware of in my daily interactions around me, um, you know, in order to respect uh, what everybody's expectations are here. Um, you know, there's obviously a difference in, in your daily life as uh, I'm, a, I'm a big white guy walking around a place that's relatively homogenous. And so there's a different um, visibility in, in day-to-day life that exists here that didn't otherwise for me in the States. So that's obviously an adjustment that's had to be made. Um, and then to speak to the language barrier, uh, it is significant. I mean, there's, there's uh, obviously Korean and English share virtually no similarities. Um, I've been very fortunate. The team has provided an interpreter full time for anything work related. Um, and he's also been very helpful with like ordering food and going to the supermarket and things like that. Um, so in that regard, it's been nice to have someone that can bridge that gap, obviously. Uh, however, that has challenged me personally to be much more concise with my communication. Um, you know, obviously you're playing telephone in a sense where things don't directly translate from language to language, especially languages as different as English to Korean. So uh, in a sense, it's been a it's been a welcome challenge because when you and I are talking, you know, we, we're both fluent in English. I can kind of just 
beat around the bush and, and, and sort of just put my message across and you'll get the majority of the message just because you understand the language so well. Out here, that's not the case. And so it's really important for me to really be concise with my messaging um, and at the same time, really, really listen and challenge the other person to be concise with their messaging also so that we can get to exactly the point we want to accomplish as effectively and efficiently as possible. No, great answer to a really hard question. And, and again, it, it's, it, I was sharing with you um, earlier that, that I have, that my sister and brother-in-law lived in, in Seoul, South Korea for, man, uh, several years. Um, and, and so that I got to, got to hear different stories about that. Uh, Korean barbecue obviously was at the, the top of the list, but <laughs> it is great. It is great. <laughs> that's, that's, I'll have to experience that at some point. I, I really kicked myself for not going over there whenever, whenever they were living there. But I think that's a, that's a great answer. And it, it's something that, that changes, uh, with every, with every year, because you think about here in pro ball, we have more of a Latin speaking, uh, mm-hmm. cultural fit. And then over there, you're, you're like the, the outlier, which is a, another interesting dynamic that, that you're working yeah. through. But also let's talk about the differences between the baseball side of it. And, uh, we, we hit on the culture. So our listeners got to hear a little bit of a, of, of a background behind the why behind you know, the behavior, but let's talk a little bit about, uh, the why behind the baseball, because I look at, at Japanese baseball and, I, and I've seen a lot of different things that they do. And, and a lot of the different things that they do is because of the players that they have. Uh, and so that we obviously concept context is key there. Uh, but tell us a little bit about the KBO, the differences between it. Uh, I know bat flips are, 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 not frowned upon in the KBO. It seems like they they are like met with rounding applause, and and the higher that you can flip your bat, the the better. But tell us a little bit about uh, the different dynamic between uh, baseball in the U.S. versus baseball in Korea. Some differences that that you found, and and then kind of uh, how you are going about coaching there. Sure. So, I mean, the bat flips are definitely, I think at this point it's so ingrained. I don't even know if the players really notice that their teammates are <laughs> halfway across the world, to be honest with you. I still find it fascinating, but it's it's very funny to see just like a, a ground ball through the hole get bat flipped halfway to third base. Um, no, I, a great question, though, outside of that. I think um, the one thing that I'll say that's really, really positive in my experience here is the, the amateur baseball is very different. Uh, the structure of amateur baseball in Korea is very different than it is in the States to where um, – the, the showcase environment that's become so popular in the States that really started like when I was coming up in high school and then has just exploded in the last maybe 10 years or so. Um, it, it doesn't really exist as much here. And so they play games, you know, they're, they're high schools, they play a lot of games, they play a lot of tournaments and they practice very hard to refine their skills. So uh, their proprioception, their, their body awareness is a lot stronger here than I think I've seen in some of my experiences working in the States to where, you know, if you make a suggestion on a, on a mechanical tweak or on body positioning, um, they're usually able to do it fairly quickly, a lot quicker than I expected them to, you know, especially for some of the younger players we're working with here. So that's been a really like welcomed kind of nice thing just because we're able to sort of experiment and implement different things. And the players are able to give us that sort of immediate feedback because they understand their bodies really well. Um, with that being said, I think the, uh, not that they're not athletic here, obviously everybody is athletic or professional athletes, but I think the skill acquisition uh, aspect of things that is, has, uh, the states, uh, people in the states have done such a good job of, I think is something that we can ramp up here um, to where we can encourage them to be comfortable being uncomfortable in practice. 
um, and, and something that we're really striving to implement um, in a competitive environment to where they are challenged and they are feeling uncomfortable because it's a movement that, they, that they're not used to or it's a movement that they haven't typically uh, been coached through in the past. Uh, and we encourage them in, a, in, a, in an optimistic, obviously, in a competitive way to try to you know, work through uh, the stages of learning that, that movement um, to the point where it becomes of a, a more of a natural sort of ingrained uh, process they don't really have to think through. So in those regards, um, I definitely think those are two stark-ish differences that I've seen. Um, and then just implementation of data and technology, I think, is something that we're like full go on here and something that they haven't had as, as much exposure to. Um, you know, I was really fortunate, like you mentioned, to come from the Dodgers where, uh, you know, we were at the forefront of a lot of the technological advances in the game. And so the players that I was coaching or being around with the Dodgers had a really, really ingrained understanding of those of those uh, technologies and the, and the data that was being provided. And so we're really trying to ramp that up here um, to make the players more comfortable, to help them understand what they do and when they do it and how they're being evaluated. So, so those things are, are, you know, obviously it's kind of a long-winded answer, but those are really the things that I've noticed in my short time here. No, I love the the long-winded answer because I, I think that the, that was very <laughs> thorough. And so, uh, with with that being said, I mean, it, it's it's you mentioned that that you're you're I think with struggle, uh, it's going to help us to learn the task better. But I also, I, I'm curious about, you, you mentioned the hierarchy uh, culture of respecting mm-hmm. your elders. And for most of the players, I'm, I'm assuming that you're an elder and, and, and you are, but you, I know you are an authority figure uh, in their mind. How much does that play into them wanting to please you and not struggle versus you want to put them in situations to struggle and, and helping them to understand that that's okay. That's how we learn. That's how we get better. So that's a, that's a fantastic question. I'll, I'll give you two different sort of answers, viewpoints to it. So I'm in a dual, dual role here where I, I'm, you know, the minor league pitching coordinator, and then I'm also serving as a quality control coach for the major league club. And so I might, you know, work with an 18 year old on the mound in the morning and then go to the, the major league stadium for an afternoon workout with like a 39 year old reliever uh, who has kids that are in high school, you know, so it's a very different dynamic of communication, both naturally because of the age difference, but also because of that hierarchy here. So, um, I try to treat it similarly um, in those two scenarios that I gave you. You know, that 39-year-old reliever wants the same thing as the 18-year-old out of a coach. They want support, they want trust, and they want care. Um, now, that's going to look a lot different for people of different age groups, people of different experience, people of different mindsets, but their desire is the same. Um, and and so if I'm able to show them that they can trust me, that I, they that, that they can understand that I care about them and also be transparent um, in the way we are um, evaluating their processes and we're, we're explaining to them exactly what we're looking at, why we're looking at these things um, and why this is maybe more of a bigger picture conversation that we're having, or maybe um, this tweak is going to help us against this very specific subset of an opponent. Um, that transparency over time builds that trust to where there is still a factor of, you know, they want to respect the authority. They want to respect their elders, um, whether I am younger or older than them. But I do think that the comfort level in um, the information is raised. And so the respect doesn't come out of fear. It comes out of uh, sort of this natural uh, communication. 
And my hope is that they're not fearful of us in any way. I don't want them to try to impress us. I want them to have control over their careers and, and want to be the best that they can be for themselves as players. And, and it's our only job to support them in that. And, and so my hope over time is that we can continue to communicate those things to those players um, and build that trust to where they can still respect that culture of, of, of the hierarchy, but at the same time understand that they can take control over their careers and, and we still respect um, if they have philosophical differences or if they have questions that might be, um, you know, opposed to something that might be suggesting. So, I love it. And uh, again, it's a, that's a, a, another cultural dynamic that you have to work through. And I don't think that, I, I think that the authority figure being so stressed over there and, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit different here, but uh, just because I, I think that at the end of the day, players really want to, they want to please their coach. I mean, I, yeah. they really do. And and so that whenever we're putting them in an environment where they are going to struggle, uh, but with the end in mind and getting them to understand that at the forefront of the training, I think that that's really, really, really important. Uh, and, and so it, it's not like, you know, turning a machine from 30 feet on from 30 feet at like 90 miles an hour and just saying, Hey, figure it out. And, and then letting them go at it. Uh, and I'm sure it's the same thing thing for you, uh, from a pitching perspective, but how do you, as, again, with, with the language barrier and you're looking at it from a holistic view and, and you're brand new to this, what's your plan to get them to, uh, to buy into what you're doing, which, which I'm, I'm just going to assume that that it's different. Uh, tell me if it's not. But what is your what is your plan of getting the the player buy in? Because at the end of the day, we want the players to be their own best coaches, right? And, and they've they're the only ones in their entire career who have seen every pitch that they've thrown, uh, seen every ball that they've hit. And so if we don't if we don't get them to be their own best coach, then we're we're missing out on a huge piece of player development. But What's your what, what? And maybe you've already done this in the in the front end of things. But uh, if we don't have buy-in, we are not going to get the best out of them. What was your plan, or what is your plan continuing forward to try and make sure that they do that? I I think it's really simple. I think we just need to practice what we preach. Um, you know, if if we're asking them to trust us, we're That's asking awesome. them to give us a hundred percent buy-in. Then we need to be able to do the same for them. Um, if they have questions, if they have concerns, if they have disagreements with us. Um, then that's something that we need to embrace. You know, it's not, it's not a personal disagreement. They're not telling me as a, they're not saying, Josh, you are not good at this. They're saying, Hey, in the context of my career, my actions, my feelings, I'm not comfortable with this. And, and for a player to give us that kind of feedback is absolutely fantastic. I get excited where every single time that happens. So we just need to practice what we preach. We need to be able to, um, show them exactly what we mean. Um, you know, we can say everything we want. We have all these fancy gadgets we use and, you know, we have all the technology with that, that we have access to and, 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 and it's all great. We all use it every day, but at the end of the day, um, if, if they're going to trust us, we need to show them that we 100% buy into everything that we're asking them to buy into. That's a great answer. I really like that. Uh, practice what you preach, and I think that that's <laughs> that's obviously how you build trust. That's how you uh, you show them exactly what what we're trying to do. And, and again, in a in a in a setting where where you are the authority figure, and they almost take every word that you say for granted. I, I think that that that's really cool, and and they not only can can hear you say that uh, 
which sometimes can be, there's some things could be lost in translation. Who knows? But if they're seeing you put in that work every single day, I think that's great. Uh, So say, let's say that you have a pitcher who needs to make uh, this change. Like you're either looking at data or you're looking at his uh, biomechanics profile, whatever it may be. Um, And so you're wanting to get him to make a change. Again, you're, you're fairly new in this role. Um, and, uh, and, and there is a language barrier there for a lot of the players. So what does that conversation look like? Because it's something that, that I didn't really think about whenever I'm, you know, uh, talking with, with amateur players who mostly speak English for their, uh, their first language. And, and it's something that we work through together, but it's something that I've been really thinking of lately because, uh, for me, we've, we've got a high Latin population, uh, they don't know me all that well, and they may have two or three different hitting coaches or just coaches in general uh, throughout the season, and making changes uh, for them is, is a big deal, right? And so uh, it's the same thing with you, uh, and they're still getting to know you, but I'm curious of, of, okay, so this is player X, and he needs to make this change, which is kind of a, a broad question. It depends on what change it is, I'm sure, but but bear with me. Uh, what does that conversation look like? And, and give us some advice on that. Yeah. So I think it, it, it's a great question. I think there's multiple layers to that. I mean, I guess the first layer is identifying that change, um, why it needs to be made. You know, um, we, we try to have a very, very detailed documentation process throughout the entire coaching staff. Um, and so if there is a change that we identify, whether it's one coach or, or several coaches, or maybe the player identifies a change that he might want to make, um, we collectively sort of attack the the idea. And, and like I said before, we, we tr- try to treat it as like a think tank, right? So there's no one that's better or worse than anybody else at making decisions. It's all just a collective ability to try to um, embrace what's best to, for the player. Um, you know, once we do figure out um, the documentation is valid, there's legitimacy behind the, the thought process. Um, then we go to the data. You know, I, I see data as a way to, um, it's a tool in the, in, in the tool belt, right? It's, it's more information. It provides you with with a structure around your your process and it also provides you with more tools to communicate with um if if a player uh embraces a certain type of data then great we're going to attack with that if he doesn't really understand that type of data that doesn't make him worse than the other guy that does we're just going to go a different way so i look at the technology and i look at the data as a way for us to be way more well informed than using just our subjective opinions um, and if we are detailed in our documentation, we are detailed in our, in our process of understanding the data and applying the data, then we can go to the player with a lot of different ways to uh, communicate the ideas and hopefully the collaborative effort, that sort of circular communication, um, that I mentioned before is, is strong. And we're able to kind of have that, um, barrier lifted to where the player is willing to give us constructive feedback and we're able to give the player constructive feedback at the same time. And, and throughout that entire process, possibly the most important thing in my opinion is, um, the coach's willingness and, and, um, and ability to recognize that they don't know the answer. Um, you know, I don't know is a very powerful phrase for, for a coach. Um, and I think that helps build trust also, because if I don't know an answer to a question, I just had a, a player ask me a question yesterday about tweaking, uh, his pregame weighted ball routine, uh, you know, for his, for his throwing warmups. And I wasn't a hundred percent sure, um, if what he was suggesting that he was going to do, was he like great or terrible? And so I said, Hey, I don't know. Let me, let me do some research on this and I'll get back to you. And, and I was actually really proud of myself just for being able to take a step back and understand that saying, I don't know, could be a very, very powerful tool. And, and through that communication process, that's something that we strive to really attain. Um, 
and, and really magnify for our players that, hey, we're learning through this together. You know, we don't have all the answers and that's okay. Um, we want you to have all the answers about your body. Like you said, a player is their best coach. And so we want to help support the player and helping him identify what's best for him um, using the tools that we have at our disposal and the communication that we've uh, documented amongst ourselves to make it a collaborative effort. Oh, fantastic. And and while we're talking about data, let's, you know, dig into it a little bit because, again, it, it can, I, I think you put it well whenever you said, you know, using the data as a tool in in the toolbox and, and it's something that can be overwhelming. It's something that can, uh, that's, that it seems like you're either on one side of the fence, you're either data driven to where you're teaching to what, what the data says that you want it to say, or you're on the opposite side to where you're like, I just need to stop watching a radar gun. Uh, but I think I think for with everything, it, it's a balance of finding what fits either for the organization, for yourself, or for the player. And so, uh, just for for those listening who are kind of working through what we've all been through of like, oh my gosh, this is so. I'm tired of looking at Excel spreadsheets. I'm tired of <laughs> of of trying to decide what what is something that's really important and and what's something to to look at. Can you give the the pitching coaches listening? a little idea of just some, just some different things that you found of been like, Hey, these are some commonalities that some really good players have done. I don't think that there's any, if there's many, if any absolutes, but uh, who knows? And, uh, but just, just help those guys out because I, I I get it. The struggle is real. I've been through like the, the data brain freeze of where you're like, I'm I'm just, I'm really tired of this right now, but, but it's also helpful. So just kind of help us out with, with that a little bit. Yeah, no, a, a great question. So I, I actually try to take a, a viewpoint of, you know, we're, we're really fortunate here. I, I'll take a step back. We're really fortunate here to have the resources available to us. We have a biomechanics lab to do um, testing with force plates and 3D motion capture cameras. We have tons of Rapsodo units and Edertronic cameras and, uh, you know, a full several pliable plyo walls, you know, for our, for our driveline drills and whatnot. So um, I don't view all those tools any differently than I would view, like you said, a radar gun and a stopwatch for a scout. I think when I was scouting, for example, I'd find myself in, you know, Bixby, Oklahoma, your neck of the woods. And, and um, sure, I'd be identifying, you know, a, a fastball. And I could probably tell you if a fastball was hard or not, but I couldn't tell you exactly how hard it was. And I look down at the radar gun and I'd tell you, oh, that's 92 or oh, that's 96 or oh, that's 88. Uh, if I have a stopwatch in my hand, it's, oh, I can, that guy can run, but you know, how fast is it a four, one down the line? Is it a four, three down the line? There's obviously a big difference in that. So those tools help us quantify things that we probably already have a good idea about even better. And in my mind, the, the biomechanics lab, the Rapsodo, the TrackMan, all these technologies that we use is really no different than any of those things. We're not really doing anything different than baseball has ever done. We're just quantifying it differently and we're informing ourselves in a different manner. Um, and so that's kind of what they, the way I look at it. Um, there obviously is a ton of re, uh, technology out there. There's a ton of data out there. It is very difficult to sift through. I find myself in like the sort of the, the black hole of Twitter at night, you know, reading through these threads or on YouTube, watching these videos and trying to learn. And I'm not really entirely sure, you know, how mm-hmm. beneficial it might be or if it's great. Um, stripped down to answer the question about like some commonalities of players. Um, I mean, missing bats is what we're trying to do as pitchers. If a guy's missing bats consistently, that's obviously a good thing. And if you see somebody at the next level who's missing bats in a similar way that that person is doing it, then that's probably a good thing also. I know it's kind of simplistic to say, but that's sort of stripping it down at the very, very surface level of things. Um, 
you know, if, if, if a, a, a guy throws a four seam fastball that has, you know, sort of that ride to it that you can kind of see where it's got that giddy up that life through the zone. And then he has a big downer curveball. Um, chances are that's tunneling pretty well. We can quantify that as spin efficiency using a Rapsodo unit, but you don't need a Rapsodo to tell you that that's a pretty good pitch, you know, and you can work off of that. We've been working off of that for over a hundred years as coaches um, without a Rapsodo. And I think baseball coaches have done a pretty good job to this point. So I look at the data and all the technology that we have uh, as, as fantastic tools to, to use. But at the same time, I definitely don't think it's reinventing the wheel by any means. I just think it's tightening the wheel and making everything move more efficiently. I love that. And and the more that I that I do these conversations and the more that I talk to good coaches like yourself, it seems that simple you said <laughs> it sounds simple, but simple wins. Like simple does win and, and we look yeah. at we look at a lot of coaches who or a lot of players who look back on their careers and, and they're like, Man, this coach really helped simplify things for me. That's that is, is enough evidence as we know. Uh and and you know, the 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 Einstein quote it's making things simple, not simpler. Right. Yeah. Um, and so just trying to, to figure out, OK, let me look at this holistically. Uh, what are the keystone movements that we need and how do we teach those really, really well rather than trying to cue salad them and throw just a, a thousand different things at them at one time? And they're just going, oh, my gosh, what's what's going on? Uh, that's our yeah. job. That's our job to get to to have our mind like that and then be able to filter it out to the players. Uh, but well, I think it's another thing to figure out exactly what the what the player is feeling also, because, you know, what they're feeling isn't necessarily what they're doing. Um, and that's point. OK. You know, we need to figure out. Uh, I'll give you an example. There was a player that I coached for, for two years with the Dodgers. who's uh, He's an outfielder um, and he swore he swung down. He just swore he swung down on the ball and he didn't. We knew he didn't. We had the blast motion and the diamond kinetics and the KVS and we had his launch angles and we had his exit velocities and, and he had a ton of home runs in the minor leagues. He was a very strong uh, player, but he was convinced he swung down. And so when he cued himself to swing down and got his A swing off, we said, great, okay, keep swinging down. You know, hey, if that's the cue that works for you, then then keep doing it. You know, there's nothing, we know you're not swinging down in, in actuality, but if, if that's the cue that works for you, that enables you to do what's best in the game and we're able to identify this is the cue and this is the result, you know, that's great. We don't really care what the cue is at all as long as it works for the player. And I think that's important to identify also. No, that's a great point. Great point. And so uh, again, for our listeners, uh, most of them are in the college or amateur level. What are some different keystone movements that you're looking for from the delivery? So I think we all have, have bias and I think that we all are looking for, for different things because again, uh, we're coaches, we've been doing this for a long time and there are some things that we feel a lot of people do well. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's kind of what we go to or for video or just looking at, you know, just player X or player Y and trying to get them to move a little bit better. But are there any things that, that you really, you look for first because you think that it could clean up other things? Uh, it could be mechanical or it, it could just be, uh, how they move. We, you look to that first or, or just kind of get, walk us through, if you're trying to make if if a new player comes in and you're trying to look over video and you and you want to make a change, what are some different things that you're looking for uh, as far as that goes? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I, I Don Alexander is one of the pitching coordinators for the Dodgers. Once said um, that he always starts from 
the ball and works back. The ball tells the story. And so um, I've tried to do that, you know, as, as I've gotten further along in my coaching career and I continue to learn, um, see how the ball works, you know, see what the stuff looks like, see how the ball plays out of the hand. If, if it might look unconventional to you in terms of their mechanics, in terms of their movements, but it works for them. Um, great. You know, I think just looking at surface level, I think, you know, guys like Corey Kluber or guys like Chris Sale that you watch on TV every fifth day, I probably wouldn't teach a kid to naturally move their arms and their bodies the way that those two guys do, do. And yet they're at the top of the, at the game. So there's really no central tenet that I would define as, you know, you have to teach this way. I don't think that's a really cookie cutter is, is in my opinion, just not a really great way to uh, help individualize athletic movements. There are certain cues, I think, for health factors. Um, You know, we want the arm uh, at or inside a 90 at foot strike, weight bearing foot strike. So when the when the weight, when your foot hits the ground, your front foot hits the ground and, and the weight fully transfers, you want your, your arm at or inside a 90. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty big proponent of, of figuring out how the back foot is uh, utilizing uh, the ground. You know, the back foot is the only part of your body that's touching the ground um, from the very start of your delivery to release. Um, and if you're engaged with the ground and you're using the ground and you're, you're moving your forces, you're riding the slope of the, of the mound efficiently, everything else will generally stack itself, um, you know, with obviously some, some variables involved uh, with that statement. So, I mean, those are kind of things that I would look at right away. I would say, number one, you know, how does the ball work? If, if the guy's a good pitcher, the guy's a good pitcher, you know, we're not going to try to, sometimes, it, sometimes the guy's just good. Sometimes you need to let, get him, you know, get him out there and just compete. Um, and then, you know, once you peel that back and you can start to make, you know, some, some tweaks here and there, I think just importance for health and, and repeatability, I think is, um, you know, getting the arm into, into slot on time and then, you know, mm-hmm. how the back foot kind of, kind of engages with the ground. Um, you know, and these are things that I've learned, um, you know, probably more recently than I, I, I should have, um, you know, when I was a scout, I was a pretty big stickler for, um, like I didn't love longer arm actions, uh, you know, and out of back, out of, out of the, uh, out of the glove, or I didn't love, you know, when guys recoiled their arms after, after release. And, and I've come to find out that like, those are kinetic principles that, uh, you work for a lot of guys, you know, you see a lot of guys with a longer arm action that are very successful in the big leagues. You see a lot of big league starters, you know, utilizing a recoil because they're, they're decelerating their arm because there's such a violent movement in internal rotation through the throw that they need to decelerate their arm by recoiling backwards. You see guys like Walker Bueller doing it, or, you know, Jordan Ventura obviously was a, um, a great example of that prior to he, you know, his passing. So guys like mm-hmm. that have been really successful at the major leagues with these, with these mechanics. And, you know, a few years ago, if you asked me if that was good, if I would teach that, I would have told you no. Um, and that was wrong. You know, the reality is, is, is every pitcher is different. Every person is different and we need to understand how the body moves before we really make any kind of firm decisions. For sure. Great answer. And uh, again, it's uh, interesting to hear every coach's thought process on just the why behind it. Because uh, again, if I think we're all entrenched in, in what we what we are trying, uh, the changes that we're trying to make, and and we all have a why behind it. So I, I love uh, getting to hear that aspect of it. But let's talk a little bit about yourself, and obviously, uh, you're a guy who's well spoken, well educated, and has gotten to experience a lot of different cultures. Growing up in New York, obviously, is is one, uh, but getting to see different parts of the country, and then moving to a different country. Uh, but what's something that you've learned lately that has really gotten you excited either about your own learning, uh, about psychology, about the game of baseball, about 
uh, anything in general, but what's something that you've learned lately that's, that's really piqued your interest? Yeah. I mean, obviously experiencing the Korean culture, I think just every day there's a new thing that I'm learning um, that's different and some of it's great. Some of it's just an adjustment that I need to make. So nothing really specific there that I can really pinpoint other than, like you said, every barbecue place is better than the last. Um, the, uh, I guess specific to baseball. I mean, I, I love learning. I'm constantly, like I said, I'm constantly online. I probably stay up way too late most nights, like just constantly reading through things. Um, uh, something that I've actually kind of starting to dive in on the last few weeks has been comparing tennis serves to pitching deliveries um, and just understanding sort of angular velocities and how rotation works. And I, I think, you know, uh, tennis players uh, utilize their their uh, front hit really well in serving the ball, um, as well as with backhands. I think backhands, there's a there's a similarity to, a, a you know, a, a baseball movement of throwing a baseball. So like Stan Warinka, who's a, a professional tennis player who uh, has a really good backhand, uh, according to the internet from, from what I've learned. Um, I've watched a lot of video of him in slow motion from different angles, just trying to understand exactly how his body works, um, to try to see if there's a way where we can, you know, further emphasize things, uh, on the baseball diamond, on the mound, you know, and, and things like that. So that's something that I've gotten into recently, just trying to, you know, it's almost a skill acquisition point in my mind for a coach to try to think outside the box and try to figure out ways to, um, you know, continue communicating the same information in a lot of different ways. And, and maybe we can find a breaking point to where something, you know, clicks for a player, a certain movement that was previously unknown comes. So for me, it's just, it's a constant learning process. And, and, and that's something that I just has suddenly I've gotten really excited about like pretty recently. That's awesome. Uh, another thing that I have learned is that <laughs> baseball player, and, I, and again, go with me with the context here. Uh, baseball players are all the same. We're all competitive. Uh, we're all slightly immature at times. And so that doesn't change whether you're from a Latin country, whether you're from the South, the Northeast, the West, uh, Korea, Japan, wherever you're from, we all love to compete. We all love to have fun. So what is something that you do in training that your players love? Oh, we just, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. We try to make everything competitive always. I, I, I think, and I, we haven't studied this, but I would be I would be shocked if it was incorrect to say that there has not been a single drill that we've implemented with the Lote Giants in the minor leagues or the major leagues that hasn't significantly increased in quality the second we've put a competitive element into it. Um, you know, and I mean, simple things like PFP days. You know, when we're working on PFPs, which is a drag. I hated it when I was playing fielding and throwing to first, covering first, fielding ground balls, fielding bunts. All these things are a drag. Nobody, no pitcher likes doing PFPs. But the second we split them up and we say, hey, you're turning double plays and we're going to time you on your double play turns and we're going to hit you hard grounders and you're going to play shortstop, you're going to play second and we're going to, you're going to draft two teams, you know, and you're going to compete and, and whatever it is. They don't even need a prize. They just start talking to each other and they start yelling and they start laughing and immediately the quality of the work gets, gets better, like, like instantly. So we try to make everything as competitive as possible. We really, really encourage the competitiveness. We'll get in there and kind of give some jabs at them. Um, you know, it, at the same time to try to like make that energy go up. Um, when we're doing some velocity training, when we're doing some like hyper-specific mechanical work, we'll crank up the volume on their favorite song. You know, we'll start dancing around and kind of making fools of ourselves to try to lighten the mood and get them going a little bit just to to try to get them feeling loose and relaxed and, and really like energetic in their processes. So anything we can do to raise the energy, raise the, raise the intent level, raise the competitiveness in practice, no matter what it is, 
um, we try to do. And, and I, a lot of that I learned from Sean Larkin, um, who's the assistant field coordinator with the Dodgers. He's a skill acquisition, uh, skill, excuse me, skill acquisition specialist. And so Lark would spend mm-hmm. a lot of time working with like Clayton McCullough, who's the field coordinator and a few other guys really just trying to find like creative ideas where we can continue to like evolve the guys while not like overloading them physically, but having them really understand their body movements without recognizing what they're doing. Something we're doing here now um, in Korea is we, we actually bought uh, like uh, six uh, spike ball units. I don't know if you're familiar with the game spike ball. Um, And it's sort of like a, like a volleyball style game where it's super simple. You just like smack a ball into a circular net on the ground and, it's pretty similar rules to volleyball. And so you play teams of two, just two on two. And we'll just say, Hey, like spike ball tournament for the next half hour. And it has nothing. There's no baseball movement. There's no baseball activity, but these guys are sweating and panting and yelling at each other and they're exercising and they're, they're learning motor function and there's fast twitch elements to it. There's reaction, there's teamwork. Um, there's obvious athletic movements moving different directions and, and obviously a very, very strenuous cardio exercise element to it also. And they have no idea that they're doing any of those things. They're just trying to compete and beat their friends, you know? And so we try to do all these really cool, fun activities to try to really get them going and really keep them competitive and fun. Um, knowing that that entire process is going to really make them better long-term. Oh, that's fantastic. And, uh, friend of the show as well had lark on and and i think that we could probably record an episode every week for the foreseeable future and it would be filled with with great content from him uh one of <laughs> one of my favorite guys uh, in the game of baseball but uh last question for you and, and it's something that we're all especially during this time we're looking for good resources to spend our time uh trying to get better at so are there any favorite books or resources that you either dug into lately or in the past that have really shaped your coaching career uh yeah i mean i books uh thinking fast and slow by daniel kenneman i really enjoyed it's a he's a nobel prize winning behavioral economist um just talking about the different systems of, of behavior and thought. Um, I really enjoyed Ray Dalio's book, Principles, um, which is more of a, a sort of a drastic leadership style of radical transparency. He runs a hedge fund uh, based out of Connecticut. So those are two books that I, I enjoy just as sort of a outside the box thinking element to, to learn from. Um, I read fan graphs every single day. Um, I jump on there and read all the articles that they write. I, I spend a lot of time going through the stats and the resources that are available on there. That's probably my go-to online resource just to try to stay updated and try to stay current. Um, but I honestly think part of, part of what I like the most about the industry is just the ability to kind of pick up the phone and talk shop with someone, you know, especially in times like these where we are kind of constrained, we're uncertain about the length of this is, you know, this, this entire process and how things are going to go for the future. I think there's a comfort level in, in sort of the camaraderie of empathy and talking shop is really exciting and really cool. So I'll just hop on the phone, you know, when my friends aren't sleeping um, in the States and, and, you know, Hey man, how's it going? You know, how's your family? Let's talk about the prospects you saw when you were scouting in South Carolina or Southern California or Oregon or whatever. Um, and I'll talk about something that we're doing at the park also. So I think talking shop is, is, is great. Um, and it's a really, really good way to learn. I've picked up a lot of the things that I know nowadays, just from literally just having conversations with my friends in the game. And so would highly encourage people that are listening to just like communicate, just chat about baseball in the most casual way possible. I really, really strongly think that's like an awesome, awesome way to learn. I love it. And, uh, for the listeners who, Maybe want to get to chat with you and get to know you a little bit better. What's the best way they can get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter uh, at Josh Herzenberg. Um, my DMs are open. Welcome to DM me. Shoot me a, a message over there. We, you know, happy to chat. 
always about baseball. Um, so you can find me on there. And then I guess shameless plug for those who are looking for some live baseball. Uh, our, U- our team YouTube channel is Giants TV. So if it's, uh, you know, just two words, Giants, new word TV uh, on YouTube, we will be live broadcasting all of our scrimmages. Unfortunately, the broadcast is in Korean, uh, but one of the color commentators on occasion is our team GM. Um, which I think is pretty cool. They also bring in some players, uh, some pitchers that aren't pitching that day to kind of do a few innings of color commentary as well. So trying to be more engaging with the with the fans, uh, you can hop on the, the YouTube account and watch some baseball. Um, I'll try to be as interactive as possible on social media if you guys are interested in following along and anything we can do to you know, help make the situation better. We understand we're fortunate here being able to play baseball live every day and, and hopefully we can provide some entertainment for those that might not be able to do the same at this time. I love it. Well, I'm just going to open up the mic for you and uh, give you a little bit of time as, as we close. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? Uh, no, not really. Like I said, I, I appreciate the time. Um, this is one of my favorite podcasts. I've listened to probably every episode that you've done over the last few years and uh, really excited to hop on here and, and talk shop with you and, and uh, appreciate the invite. Hopefully we can you know, get this virus out of the way. Everybody stays healthy and we can get back to playing baseball games. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.